Last week, we started a series called God's Plan for the Church, and we laid an important foundation for the rest of this series, that God's plan for the world is the church. God is not limited by the church, but the church is God's primary instrument to serve and love the world. Of course, the church is not a straitjacket for God, but the church is the gift of God to the world. And once we know that truth, we can explore God's plan for the church. And today we're talking about God's plan for the church is to be united. God's plan for the church is unity. Now, in my life, I've experienced a lot of different kinds of churches. I have grown up in churches of Christ, and I love these churches, but I've worked for and experienced other kinds as well. I worked for a church called St. Aldate's in Oxford, England for a year, which the leaders described as evangelical, Anglican, and charismatic. I worked as a youth minister at a Pentecostal church in a poor neighborhood in Abilene, Texas, where during worship services, members would wave flags and dance in a conga line. I gave the eulogy for my grandmother's funeral at a full Catholic mass, and I have read scripture in an Eastern Orthodox church in Tennessee. So I have seen all the different kinds of churches. I've seen real common ground between these churches, but I also see vast differences. And the question, the burning question is, what does God want for these churches with common ground and yet unmistakable differences? And the answer in the New Testament is unity. But unity is very challenging in a divided country, a divided culture, and a divided church. You might think, okay, unity sounds good, but it's naive. It's an optimistic pipe dream. You might have heard people use the word unity to avoid difficult topics. We don't want to go there because we want to protect unity. You might think that people sacrifice their principles and their integrity on the altar to unity. You might not even want unity with certain people with whom you disagree. But even more deeply, the big question is, what could possibly be the basis for unity? What could we have in common? Now, I think a Christian understanding of unity helps us address all of those concerns, but without giving into despair or naive optimism. For those of you who aren't familiar with him, the Apostle Paul dealt with very divisive churches. Paul was a Jewish Christian missionary in the Mediterranean region. He helped start new churches in modern-day Italy and Greece and Turkey and Syria. And he even started a series of house churches in an ancient city called Corinth. Now, apparently, after being there for over a year, Paul left those churches under the care of other Christian leaders, one of whom was named Apollos. And the members of these churches in Corinth started taking sides with their favorite ministers. They would say which minister they followed. And Paul sees that division as destructive to the unity of the church. He writes a letter to these churches that is going to be read out loud on a Sunday morning. 
He appeals to them at the very beginning of the letter that in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to agree with one another in what you say. I want to, for y'all to have no divisions among you, but that y'all would be perfectly united in mind and thought. Then Paul writes a few rhetorical questions, and all of them have an obvious answer to Paul, which is no. In verse 13 of chapter 1, Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? All of the obvious answers to Paul are no. Christ is not divided. Christ is not split up into pieces. Christ is one and indivisible. In other words, Paul is saying, you can't say you follow me or Apollos or Peter because we all follow Christ. Christ is the one who was crucified for us, not Paul and not Peter and not Apollos. And by the way, we're baptized in Christ's name. Paul says, I only baptized a few of you, and then I handed over the ministry of baptism to other leaders because we're all baptized in the name of Jesus. The person who baptized you is not as important as the one in whom you are baptized. Now, Paul is bringing this up all in the first chapter of this letter to point out that based on Christ, this church has no basis for factions based on ministers. And I love the way that Paul explains the true role of ministers in chapter 3. He says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? All we are are servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. In other words, y'all are dividing up because of the ministers you favor, but ministers are servants. They're not the Savior. We are ministers, not the Messiah. We are co-workers, we're stewards, we're employees under one boss. Yes, you came to faith due to our teaching, but the one who assigned us to teach is named Jesus, and we're baptized in his name. In other words, Paul is saying, look, I started things off. I planted these churches in the city of Corinth. Apollos kept things going, but nothing would have happened for Paul or Apollos without God's power. Paul actually uses a farming analogy here. He says, I planted seeds and Apollos watered, but I could plant as much seeds as I want and Apollos could pour as much water as he wants, but nothing would grow outside of God. Paul's saying, look, we're, we're playing our part here, but we don't make the sun shine. We don't make plants grow, so don't treat us that way. We are just ministers. But Paul actually goes one step further. So he's trying to bring them together. He's trying to dismantle these divisions. But in verse 21 and 23, Paul actually turns their understanding of their situation on its head. He says, look, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Whether we're talking about Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's a nickname for Peter, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Paul wants them to see ministers as theirs. You see, a lot of these Corinthians grew up in a patron-client society. That means if you're in the lower classes, you want a rich patron to support you. You would seek security by attaching yourself 
to a person who is higher up on the social ladder. Then you would promise to serve and be loyal to them. The patron would have all of these low-level servants who would uh, help them in any tasks they wanted, and then the servants would have the esteem and honor of their patron. Now, the Corinthians might be treating Paul and Apollos and Peter this way as they're kind of patrons. Perhaps the older members really loved Paul because he, he was the one who started the churches. Perhaps the Greek members of the church loved Apollos because he went to the school of Alexandria, which is like the Harvard of his day. Perhaps the Jewish members loved Peter because he was like them. Whatever is going on with their favoritism and factions, Paul turns the whole situation on its head. You don't want these patron relationships in the church. Don't see yourselves as belonging to your leaders. Your leaders belong to you. They are gifts from God to you. Paul goes on to say, look, you have so much more than you realize. The world and life and death and the present and the future, all are yours. These are the riches of Christ's gifts to you. Now, just covering those two chapters, one section from chapter 1 and another section from chapter 3, I think we see such a rich and deep Christian view of unity because, first of all, it's based on Christ crucified. We do not find unity in the minister we have right now or the minister we had in the past. We shouldn't seek unity in popular preachers. Popular preachers come and go. We find unity in the Lord Jesus, whose body was broken and his blood was shed for us. We're unified, not because we have an impressive leader, but because we're all forgiven by the same crucified Messiah. We see the Christian unity is also based on our baptism. Baptism isn't some empty ritual we perform. It isn't just some tradition that somebody invented a long time ago. We believe that in baptism, God's Holy Spirit indwells us and we're united to Christ. And because we're joined to Christ, we're joined to each other. That's real Christian unity. Christian unity is also based on God's generosity. Other kinds of unity are built on scarcity. We say, okay, well, look, there's only a little to go around for all of us humans, so I guess we better unite and cooperate together. But Christian unity is built on God's abundance. Paul says, all things are yours. God gives us ministers and the present and the future and the world in which we live and life in Christ and death to our old sinful selves. You're not coming together to share nothing. You're united in Christ to have more than you could have ever imagined. I love the way theologian Ben Myers interprets this passage. He says, we are not beggars hoping for scraps. We are like people who have in inherited a vast estate, more than we can ever take in at a single glance. God has been generous to us. He's given us more than we could ever imagine, and we aren't unified because of scarcity, but because of God's generosity. Now, when the Corinthian Christians don't understand this, Paul gets so upset, and he starts getting sarcastic. He says, I want to address you as people who live by the Spirit, but I can't. You're still worldly. You're 
mere infants in Christ. He says, you're little babies in the faith. You're still immature. I worked with you directly for over a year, and it's been some time since I've left, and you're still the same Christians. In the beginning of your faith, of course, I, I gave you milk, not solid food. That's what made sense at the time. You're, you're new to Christianity, but still, you're worldly. Still, you're not spiritual. You need to grow up. You need to mature. You need to grow into your new identity in Christ by the Spirit. These divisions and factions and splitting up over which minister is your favorite just shows how much God needs to do in your hearts and minds. Later on in this letter, Paul expands on unity in chapter 12, which we haven't read today, but in that chapter, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit gives different spiritual gifts to members of the church. And he uses the analogy of a body. We're all the body of Christ, and each Christian is a member or part of the body. Paul helps us understand that Christian unity is not about carbon copy uniformity. Christian unity is not based on crushing diversity. I just read the, uh, the classic A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline L'Engle. The three main characters of this story are Meg, Charles, Wallace, and Calvin, and they go on an incredible journey together throughout space visiting other planets. And these three children visit an evil planet called Kamazotes. The planet is not evil in an obvious or hellish way, but you just know that there's something wrong. The more you learn about this planet, it's something seems off, something seems eerie. For example, each house in each neighborhood on this planet is exactly identical. Each child of each house comes out at the exact same time. They bounce the same rubber ball at the exact same pace. And the sheer uniformity shows us that something is wrong. And I think what Madeline Langle is trying to depict is false unity. False unity crushes diversity. It makes everything exactly a carbon copy of each other. But Christian unity is not that way. Christian unity doesn't flatten out all the differences to make us interchangeable. Christian unity is a church with Jews and Gentiles, and male and female, and slave and free, and poor and rich, who are all one in Christ. Christian unity is like the day of Pentecost, when Christians spoke all languages by the power of the Spirit. Christian unity celebrates the spread of the gospel from the Jews in Jerusalem to the Samaritans to the Ethiopian eunuch uh, in Africa to the Roman centurion named Cornelius. Christian unity does not crush diversity. It celebrates diversity as a fuller and a deeper expression of God's will for the church. We don't see different spiritual gifts as a burden to overcome, but a gift for the common good of our church. Paul's analogy of the body also helps us understand that Christian unity should never be superficial. Some unity is kind of like a subway. There might be a lot of different people on the subway, but they are not united. 
They don't know each other. They don't eat with each other. They don't share a common faith or life with each other. A subway might represent many countries, but it isn't the unity that Christians seek. We want unity in Christ that is one body and many members. The different parts of the body should know each other and should love each other. The different parts of the human body don't just see each other once a week and go on their merry way. The members of the church should know each other, should have deep relationships with each other. Christian unity is not superficial, it's deep. I saved one aspect of unity for the end. Paul says in the very beginning of his appeal to unity, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you would be perfectly united in mind and thought. This is a really tough word in light of all the disagreements Christians have. I've been among Catholics and Orthodox and Anglicans and Pentecostals and Church of Christers, and I wonder, how can we come to a unity in faith? Now, I don't think Paul's definition of unity means agree on every possible topic under the sun. Paul allows for disagreement in this letter later on when people are asking questions about eating food from meat sacrificed to idols. But at the very least, if we think unity in faith is important, we must strive for it. That's one of the reasons why we confess the creed at the end of our services. We want to show our common faith with over one billion other Christians who hold these same beliefs. Now, we may not live to see the unity of faith in our churches that we want to see, but we can hope for it. Because perhaps God will reunite separated churches. At the very least, we ought to pray for it. And Christ himself gives us an example of that prayer. On the night before he was crucified for us, Jesus prayed, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is God's plan for the church. This is his desire for the church. God wants us as Christians to be United. He doesn't want uniformity. He doesn't want superficiality. He doesn't want unity based on scarcity or watering down our intellectual differences. God wants unity based on Christ crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. He wants unity based on our common baptism and our common faith. God wants unity that celebrates diversity and cherishes God's abundant gifts to us. And when our unity is on display for the world, the world might wonder, why are all of those people under the same roof on Sundays? Why do they eat together throughout the week? Why do they take care of each other from Monday through Sunday? How are all those Democrats and Republicans and Libertarians going to church together? How can black 
and brown and white Americans go to church and worship the same God? Well, perhaps God's plan for a united church will be a testimony to the world. We are not fated to inevitable disunity based on our differences. There is one who can unite us. There is one who can bring us together. There is one who can break down walls of hostility, and his name is Jesus. And maybe, if the Father answers this prayer for complete unity, maybe the world will know that the Father sent Jesus, and the Father loves us even as the Father loves the Son.